listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. The Dharma is so specific about how we need to be careful about seduction. And it's not just sexual or relational seduction as we typically will think about it, but hearing that car uh, out there, you know, rev its engines reminds me of how very, very seductive in another life uh, my motorcycle was. And the sense that you could have just with the slightest adjustment of your wrist, this scream of uh, metal underneath you that you could ride. Now it might sound very, very silly, but the question, what seduces you? That actually is a through line to where the Dharma or the Buddha's teachings shows us that we need to pay particular attention. We need to pay particular attention, in other words, to what it is that seduces us. Because what seduces us is actually what helps to generate attachment. So we spent some time last week talking about how we essentially, uh, uh, in, in through awakening, we begin to allow this big self to become our orientation as opposed to our contracted self. The more contracted we are, that's a fancy way of saying the more um, asleep we are, as opposed to the more expansive, which would be the more awake. And there are various things that can take, even as we begin to kind of break through, there are things that can bring us back. And those things that bring us back are seductive. So we can watch those things that seduce us. Are we seduced, for instance, instance by people who have certain qualities? They look a certain way. They smell a certain way, just on the physical. How about when they're smart? Is it seductive when you meet somebody and you just go, oh, man, that's powerful. That is a powerful mind. Is it seductive when you meet somebody that can dance so beautifully it weakens your own knees? Is that seductive? What pulls you? And that's just in relationship to other people. What situations are seductive to you? We speak so much in this practice about the middle way. And the middle way, put in real simple terms, is it's not this, and it's not not this. Very simple terms, right? <laughs> 
everybody gets it, right? In other words, the middle way is where we can begin to look at that which seduces us and instead of being caught by it, we can actually become intimate with it. And this arises through practice. Pema Chodron talks about when we habitually turn right, try turning left to watch what happens. So when something seduces you, just try this. When you feel yourself getting pulled, kind of caught by something, try internally at least taking a step back with your awareness and watching very carefully what's going on within your body. When we do this, our activity, if we are walking the path, if we are walking the middle way, it's that we are not caught, we're not pulled by it, but we're not avoiding it. Okay? So, the next time this ha practice this, the next time this happens, the, the minute you find yourself pulled by something, and it can not only be seductive in a positive way, but it also can be seductive in a negative way. Either way is a portal. It's a through line. It is a direct path to awakening that which seduces, that which pulls. Can you be intimate with whatever it is that pulls you? One of the things that is among the most powerful seducers is our sense of truth. Our sense of truth can pull us and catch us like almost nothing else. Thinking, in other words, that we know what's true is the birth of something that usually isn't terribly pleasant. Absolute conviction, in other words, I know this to be true. Absolute conviction usually leads to the birth of potential violence. I've spoken briefly about this before, but it's such a key point. Absolute conviction, you can look at as the birth of violence. Knowing truth diminishes that which is unknown. Already knowing what is true, in other words, is egoic clinging. And this is the way ego protects itself from the unknowable. And it's the unknowable that actually we are walking on. That is the path. It's the, un it, the ego can't know this. It will never be able to get its mitts around this. It will never get a handle on it. It will never grasp it. It will never understand it. It'll never be able to carry it. And ego looks for seduction. It looks for seduction that something that can catch it because then it can fight against it or it can go after it. In either case, it gives it a job. 
the unknowable fires it, gets sacked. It gets, it, it's, it dies in that moment when it approaches the unknowable. If it can't know it, it's useless. And so ego, ego will do whatever it can to try to claw back in a way that establishes or reestablishes its relevance in our experience. We can also look at already knowing truth as being a fortification, so to speak, against invulnerability. Being vulnerable to whatever arises in a way that doesn't necessarily kick us around, but doesn't necessarily suck us in, is a way of being in that middle space, walking the middle way. Already knowing truth is another fancy way of saying conceit. I know. Maybe you do. Maybe not. One of the obvious questions that comes up here is, is we talk about truth and the seduction of kind of all, always knowing or already knowing our, our sense of truth. Whose truth are we talking about? It's a very obvious question that is begged by this discussion. And if we're speaking in terms of awakening, it's the enlightened truth of infinity that is shared by all, regardless of creed or of culture or of calling. Infinity itself, that's what we're talking about. Being able to kind of consciously recognize our deep connection with that infinity and then participating from that place, that's when we are able to live from the big self in a small self world. When that happens, we kind of lose crusade. It just kind of falls away. We have nothing to fight for. We have nothing to defend because we are part of the all. And we know this with a capital K instead of the small K, which is used by ego. That in us, which is beyond ego, consciously, recognizes its effervescence, its shimmer, its participation in this. So enlightened consciousness, you could say, is not knowing. It's a total and absolute absence of any mental picture of what truth is, any mental conviction any mental understanding, believe it or not. And in this way, there is no baggage that's brought in to any situation that we might find ourselves participating in. 
Instead, what's happened is there is a rather resonant divine love that begins to percolate and permeate through us, with us, as us, towards everybody else, outside, and within, inside. So another disguise of this all, already uh, knowing truth, the seduction of I know that, is uh, already knowing falsehood. Not true. Already knowing what is not true is egoic clinging. And this is also ego's protection from getting next to the unknowable. I had a conversation with a very, very dear friend. And uh, there's going to be a wedding in the family. And we were talking about the groom. And I said, I really think this is just such a, such a neat guy. And the comment was, well, yeah, he'll keep her safe. And I thought how right she was, but I also, and this is from a mother, I also thought what a tragic expression of support that was. From the enlightened perspective, we become all that we were born to be when there is more and more and even more uncertainty welcomed into our experience. When certitude gives way to not knowing. Remember, absolute certitude is the birth of violence. Now, I know that the mother didn't mean this, you know, and I still love her with all my heart, but just where she was coming from, this place of the world is a dangerous place. Of course it is. The world is also majesty. It is infinity abounding. It's spirit in action, and it's most beautiful. I mean, it's, it's ugly and glorious all at once. So already knowing truth, already knowing falsehood. These are really, really interesting seductions. Already knowing falsehood is another, I mean, when we, when we, when we push it away, we can, we can look at this as denial. When we live in it, already knowing what is false. I mean, we essentially are grounded in a deeply opinionated and often crotchety space. Kind of difficult to be around people who are dwelling in that which is fundamentalist. It doesn't mean that they're beyond love. It doesn't mean that they're beyond compassion. But it means that there is a struggle within So, 
as much as I have kind of said that enlightened uh, expression or awakening is not knowing, it is also not not knowing. It's neither one. Awakening is our ability to listen, watch, and from that place of stillness engage in this path that isn't too much over there or too much over there. It's that middle passage and we meet it through a still intimacy with our experience. From this place of stillness, things begin to unfold. We recognize that the most important thing is for us to allow everything to be as it is and then from that conscious apprehension, conscious intimacy, we respond, we engage. And so from here, we're constantly surrendering to everything. We're not giving in. We're not giving in, just becoming mushy in a blob. We're doing it from an upright place. We engage with purpose, with intention, with kindness, with care. And from here we manifest, we become an enlightened manifestation. So to define that, to define enlightenment, we could, uh, I mean, there are a trillion different ways of doing it. One we can use. It's the realization of a flawless, perfected oneness with the all that meets up with an impulse to release. I'll say that again. Enlightenment is the realization of a flawless, perfected oneness that meets up with an impulse to release it. Oneness, give it away. With this inhalation, I am still. With this exhalation, I am one with the all. And in that exhalation, we die a little death, potentially, to what keeps us grasping. In that little moment, we can open up, even if it's just slightly, we can give ourselves over to what is. And this is the complete and simultaneously the continuance of the Big Bang. This is emptiness and form all at once. This is wisdom and compassion. This is disidentification with both time and mind. And it's an engagement in an unfolding for everyone, for all beings, for all time. If our ego is our fabrication, what is the what is the energy that keeps it so engaged in keeping us, stopping us from awakening? 
the same energy that you've used your entire life to get you what you want. The ego, in other words, is able to keep kind of reifying, adjusting, and perfecting the mask of the personality or keeping its position as the CEO of our consciousness through all sorts of things, okay? Among them, time. As long as the ego has time to play with, in other words, past or future, the ego has sustenance, it has blood, so to speak. But the interesting thing is that time is created as a partnership with ego by the mind. So the mind we almost look at as being really similar, almost a conjoined twin of ego, which is almost a conjoined twin of time. Those three things begin to create this spin. It's like a gyroscope. It just keeps going. There's a little tilt, but it writes itself back up, or like a top. So the way that we actually keep that inertia from continuing is when we consciously still our experience. Meditation is what actually stops the top. And when it tilts and falls down, there's a whole new world to explore because we're not caught in that orbit. There are more choices. So this inertia, it's Sisyphusian, right? You know, we just keep pushing that boulder up, you know, and ego bitches about it. And then when the boulder rolls down, it's like, damn it. But in ego's subconscious, it's saying, oh, at least I got another job to do, right? And so it's like a, in physics, we call it a phase lock or whatever. I mean, it's just, it just, it's perpetual. So it'll go, it'll go, as most of us know. <laughs> it's just, it'll keep going. What happens is a stillness practice breaks it. And then any type of egoic activity, any type of clinging, can be seen as a divine choice instead of something we can't control. But once we enter this practice and we pull the curtain back for the from the Wizard of Oz and see that it's just a circus man from Kansas, <laughs> I mean, isn't that, doesn't that at that point, isn't that kind of a gotcha? I mean, if, if this practice continues and we see the ego for what it truly is, I guess I'm confused why it continues to, to try to play the game. Well, because he can still pull the curtain. He can still pull the curtain back and we can get fooled again. And then, oh yeah, right? So essentially, give your full attention to that, um, to the wizard. When he, pulls, when he pulls the curtain back, sick Toto on him again. Pull that curtain back. Continue to do that. Continue to watch the ego 
And what happens is we, we begin to recognize that we are Toto rather than the, you know, the wizard. We're constantly, our awareness is constantly pulling the curtain back on everything. The ego does not want to give it up. Okay. That's it, my question. Why doesn't the ego want to give it up? Well, I mean, it, it's some, when, when it's exposed, doesn't that, and isn't, isn't the ruse up? I mean, it, it takes us a long time to right. get to the pulling the curtain back phase. But you're right, right. I mean, it Once did me, get... you know, okay, now I got the curtain pulled back and I'm going, aha, uh -huh. right. that's really nothing but me and my evil costume. <laughs> Having said that, then the question becomes, once I see me for what I am, right. you know, it seems to me that that evil me behind the curtain, well, it's not evil. Too strong I mean, a word. Okay, wrong, not wrong word. Okay, yeah. that pretentious me behind the curtain is basically saying, oh, don't look, you know, don't, right. don't ignore that guy behind the curtain, pull the curtain back, you know, and I'm supposed to go, oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. Right. But see, the thing is, it won't always look like the wizard. It's not always going to look like the wizard. In fact, it's going to change form continually. It will fight, fight this. Why? This, because it will die if it doesn't. So? Well, if it... It, it doesn't mean I'm going to die. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't mean you're going to die. It means that... As that, long as we're talking about... Let's, let's be clear about the eye that we're talking about that's going to die. The big eye. The big eye doesn't die. Never dies. It never moves. Exactly. It's still. So, so when, when we meditate, what are we doing? We're plugging the old electric car into the wall socket so that we can actually, man, get some more of that stillness, right? And what happens is that stillness then begins to shine light, conscious light on all that moves. The wizard is moving. And while it's a wizard right now, it might show up as something else that catches us. That's what I'm driving my car. When you're driving your car, yes. <laughs> the evil, the evil twin. <laughs> In other words, it's... Yeah, but I still see it. You're, you're right. Okay, that, I go, oh, moment, whoops, there's the evil wizard. Practice. And you know what, Jim? That's awakening. The minute it, there's... Oh! Caught it again. Okay? Without much dialogue about it, just... Oh, yep, gotcha. There it is. There it is. Not gotcha, but oh wow. No, gotcha in that I see you. It's not uh, that I. It's but, not that I uh, got you by the throat. Then let me explain a disguise it can wear. Gotcha. I saw you. Guess what? Ego now is trying to manage the experience of awakening. Okay, so it's 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 quite it's it's quite a bottomless pit. In other words, of instead of I got you, it's. Wow, there it is, you know? Because the, the, what ego, ego's a brawler in this case, and it varies with personality. We all have different personalities, different tendencies, but in that case, I mean, what, I go back to my original response. Everything that got you to where you are right now, even awakening, was spawned by craving, right? By clinging and so forth. And so there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of juice, there's a lot of spin to that top, okay? If there's a perception that 
I stopped the spinning of the top, ego has just jumped in to trying to wear Buddha's robe. So we back up from that and back up from that and so forth. Thank you. You're welcome. So is your ego. <laughs> Ego didn't come tonight. Oh, very good. Very good. Michael, do you use the term acceptance, yes, acceptance and surrender to mean the same in your speech, in your talk tonight? I try. I try all the time to acceptance and surrender. In other words, surrendering to what is, accepting what is. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. What, can I ask you a question? What brought that up? I'm curious. Well, just when I was listening to you, I'm thinking, well, I think he's talking just about acceptance. And I differentiate the two as an acceptance to me is, feels positive, mm -hmm. where surrender can hold a connotation of giving up. Right. And that's just my mental model. Right, right. Yeah, giving up or giving in. Yeah. Wimping out. Yeah, or just, you know. Right. No more effort. Uh, say that one more time. No more effort. Exactly. Exactly. Versus acceptance is, oh, all right. Is acceptance effortful? No. There you go. There's no effort. Right. No effort. In other words, you want to have a little stiffness in your spine as you go through this practice, whatever it is whatever way you do it. And I, I don't, it literally helps, but you know, it's not, I mean, you don't have to have a straight, you can sit in a chair and slouch as far as I'm concerned, it still works. But no effort. Arriving at that place of no effort, but still fully expressing your big self, that's a bodhisattva. I have a question about seduction. Mm -hmm. What would be the difference between pleasure, for instance, something like having time to kill and walking into a bookstore and finding a book you really want to read and thinking, wow. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that would be seductive, and yet it seems like those are the things that make life worth living. Exactly. <laughs> and if you're like me, I have no self-control in a bookstore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a beautiful uh, uh, way of experiencing the richness of life. But if your relationship to the bookstore turns into a kind of a craving or a longing, or it keeps you away from what's going on, mm -hmm. like you've had kind of a tough day, and then you begin to look outside for where you can somehow soothe that ache, that's when the seduction catches us. Do you understand the difference? Yeah. It's very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to being caught by it, mm -hmm. which is taking us away from what's, what's real and present and happening, or as a full participation in the wonder, the wow, the magic and majesty of being. Mm -hmm. They're different. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Now let go of it. <laughs> yeah, you bet. We have time for one more, if anybody wants. We have to let go of Cody's. Did you hear that? We have to let go of Cody's books. Oh, no. Clean, well-lighted place for you to sit. Yeah. 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 Ye
Okay, now let go. Let go. Because what happens is we then look at look at that situation and we get seduced by it, don't we? I watched I watched your body language go in into this place. You know? You know, we get we get seduced we get seduced by, you know, damn Barnes and Noble. You know, damn damn the borders of the world, you know, whatever. Okay. Okay, but that certitude actually creates a tiny little flare of rage. My, what I was feeling versus perhaps what my body was showing was just sadness versus I wasn't even thinking about the big block bookstores. Oh, okay. You know, I just was sadness of here is something that People, when they come to San Francisco, if they're into literature and books, yeah. they make a point to go to a clean, well-lighted place for books. I right. mean, it's an institution, and is there, as is Cody's. Is there grief associated with that? Well, now that we're talking about it, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, okay. but that wasn't what I was That's fine. feeling. That's fine. The, the point is that grief, when it's experienced and as, as surrendered, where we get curious, in other words, about the grief, then it allows us to take it into the level of big self-awareness. If, on the other hand, that grief becomes a God damn it, then we contract, right? So no matter what the situation is, whether it is a clean, well-lighted place for books or, or you know, Cody's shutting down, or whatever the reasons behind it, you know, um, our relationship to that then creates this amazing fork. It's just this amazing fork. We can either go towards big self or we can go deeper into small self, no matter what the situation. That said, I'm going to miss Cody's <laughs> and I'm going to miss clean, well-lighted place for books. But you know what? Something else is going to be there. And if there's anything I can do, I'm going to try. Black Oak Books, there you go. Lafayette Bookstore. Lafayette Bookstore, right. Libraries. <laughs> See, I want to petition the city to keep libraries open on Saturday night. As long as you don't get seduced by that. <laughs> go for it, Liter literally. But you understand the difference? Oh, yeah. Between going for it and... Yeah, and, I just it, think the three hard. cities, mm -hmm. if they alternate every right. other Friday night, I mean, every other Saturday night, one of them was open... I think one, a wonderful place for individuals, for families, for people, for anyone to go to. Now, are you certain of that? <laughs> I don't know, Michael. Okay. okay, that's good. The not knowing. But, and I'm, I'm messing with you here because... I know you are, and I'm tired. <laughs> but do you see... But, but do you, <laughs> the husband knows. I'll be careful. I'll be careful. <laughs> Go ahead. Did you, did you have a... This is very helpful because it has to do with caring about things and really caring and not getting gripped by it and somehow discerning that moment when I go from... And I did it over Cody's. I mean, because there's that kind of legitimate reaction. And then I just was the one who goes, oh, Amazon, you know. Yeah, it's, right, right, it's right, a, right. It's a... 
somehow, oh, when you were talking about seduction, I thought for me the word gripped yeah. works because I get seduced by uh, things that are unpleasant, mm-hmm. and and I can't let go of something that's bothering me. Yeah, gripped is seems more like what it is. Great, great uh, tests for that. Uh, I was watching. And we can all do this. At any point in time during your day, you can test your dharma. <laughs> you can t- or your, your, your relationship to your dharma. Yeah, your relationship to the dharma. Watch, uh, watch somebody who is deeply contracted, espousing deeply contracted ideology. Where do you go when you see poor Bill O'Reilly taking somebody on, telling them to shut up? You know, it's like, oh, that poor guy. Honestly, I mean, that absolute certainty creates war within his heart and mind, and you can see it in his face. Um, Now, we've also given him, you know, kind of a a medium so that he can express it. Now, whether your politics are conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. The point is that when we see someone who is spitting venom, what we're looking at is fundamentalism. And the way fundamentalism is, is eased, the way the top is slowed down, comes from within us first. Then we participate. Watch our own fundamentalism. Watch our own tendencies, our own grips, our own seductions. Then engage. Listen. Watch and engage. <laughs> Thanks for coming tonight.